Hello everyone and welcome to Navara Live. I'm Dahlia Gabriel and I'm thrilled to be joined by doctor, author and my play cousin Kojo Karam. How are you doing Kojo? Wonderful to be with you Dahlia. Um, so coming up on today's show we have more shocking developments in the allegations facing GB News presenter Dan Wooten. The High Court have ruled that the Home Office have again been acting unlawfully and a discussion on generational politics has started up again and we'll show you the video that sparked the conversation. So stay tuned for all of that and as always let me know your thoughts. You can get in touch on the YouTube Super Chat or over on Twitter using the hashtag Navara Live. So on to today's first story. While many have been struggling to heat their home or afford rising supermarket prices, one area of society has been raking it in. You guessed it, it's the energy companies. Britain's biggest energy supplier, British Gas, has announced for the first half of this year profits of nearly a billion pounds. That's a 900% increase from the same period last year. And as you can see in this graph from The Guardian, that British gas windfall of £968 million dwarfs the profits it's made in the same period over the last four years. In the first half of 2020 and 2022, British gas made less than £100 million. And in the first half of 2021, it made a little under £200 million. As a result, British Gas's owner, Centrica, have made £2 billion in, in operating profits. That's up from £1.3 billion last year. Another company ripping us off was French giant EDF. Its British business made almost £2 billion in profit in the first half of the year. That's two and a half times the £800 million of profit it made in the same period last year. Then there's Scottish Power, owned by Spanish energy giant Irbedrola, who made £560 million in the first six months of this year. Last year, it made an £86 million loss. One company didn't have such luck. Shell reported gains of $5.1 billion in the second quarter of this year alone, which is half as much as it made in the same period last year. And the fall is due to global oil and gas prices finally cooling. But don't feel too sorry for Shell. Uh, in the first three months of the year, it raked in nearly $10 billion in profit. These eye-watering eye gains have led to calls for a new windfall tax on fossil fuel companies. On BBC Breakfast, this was Shadow Secretary for, of State for Climate Change, Ed Miliband. Let's talk first of all about windfall tax. Uh, we know the Conservative government has tightened the rules about it. That uh, expands uh, more of company profits into that windfall tax threshold. Um, Centric are paying a billion pounds in tax in 2022. That was actually up from 430 million in the year before. What is an appropriate level that these firms should be paying? Well, the level could be a little bit higher. So we said it should be 78%, not 75%. But the real issue is not that, actually. The real issue is that this is like the proverbial Swiss cheese. It's full of holes because there's a massive loophole in this windfall tax, uh, a so-called super deduction that Rishi Sunak introduced when he was chancellor for these companies. So they have a sort of get out of jail free card, which is actually to get to invest in infrastructure in the UK and not simply take their operations elsewhere, isn't it? Well, no, but the truth about this is they're not investing. You see, you see, 
most of this money, and I think you'll see this in the figures this morning, and I, I, I think I gather from the Shell figures too, is that this is going back to shareholders in dividends and share buybacks. The, the arguments these companies make is, oh, well, this is all about investment. But the truth is, it isn't about investment. It's been about money for shareholders. So this is a transfer from families like the ones you featured at seven o'clock on your program, people really struggling to pay their bills, to these big companies and their shareholders. And the government's saying, well, you can have some money back from us. Now, I think that's the wrong priority. We should be standing up for the British people who are struggling with their energy bills, not the oil and gas companies. Yeah. Ed Miliband is completely right about the transfer of cash to shareholders. Shell, for example, dished out $6.2 billion to shareholders in the last three months alone. And that's according to research from the economic think tank Commonwealth. Today, Shell announced it will put a further $3 billion into shareholders' hands over the next few months through a share buyback scheme. And these companies love to say that these profits are all fine, they're all justifiable because they're investing it into renewables. Well, surprise, surprise, that's a lie. More research from Commonwealth shows that in the months from April to June, Shell paid out nearly 11, and I'll say that again, 11 times more to shareholders than it invested in renewables. Shareholders got £6.2 billion. The future of the planet, i.e. all of us, a paltry half a billion. And even worse, it invested more than five times as much in fossil fuels than it did in renewables, with $3.1 billion going to oil and gas infrastructure. These shocking profits and shareholder handouts led Greenpeace activists to take action outside Shell's headquarters this morning. And here's activist Maya Darlington telling me about that action earlier today. This morning, Greenpeace activists went down to Shell HQ to rebrand their offices with probably the most accurate ad that they've ever had. Our billboard that we brought down highlighted how their profits equal the people's loss. And I don't think that's ever been more clear than it is right now, given the wildfires, heat waves and extreme weather devastating millions around the world. Bringing that link between extreme weather that we're seeing and fossil fuel companies, landing that responsibility literally at their door is really key to demanding change and showing who needs to be paying for these impacts of climate change and the cost of living that um, people are experiencing right now. When you see Brits fleeing from their holiday homes um, in Greece, it definitely, it can't help but bring it back and make it more relevant. And I think that can be a really important entry point for people because whilst climate change is so, so intense right now and getting so much worse that people, no one's safe from it. But it's really important to remember at the same time that there are really unequal impacts of climate change. And whilst now it's starting to impact Brits on holiday, and I mean, let's not forget last year when we had 40 degree heat in summer, too often the people who have contributed the least to climate change, people in the global majority, people on low incomes who are not only feeling the worst impacts of climate change, but also having to pick up the tab. And that's what is totally unjust. And that is why it's so important that we place the blame at the door of these fossil fuel companies, because they are the ones profiting. They're the ones who have contributed to climate change, arguably the most. And yet they're making billions and people who have done the least are having to pick up that tab. And that is, that's climate injustice. 
That was Maya from Greenpeace, who was outside of Shell's headquarters earlier today. Um, Kojo, what like what I find so incredible here is there's no question about like who the villain is here. You know, we're having our bills skyrocketing. These oil and gas companies are earning obscene profits. Why is the relationship between the government that we elect and these oil and gas companies so ironclad that it doesn't feel like there's anything that the government is willing to do to actually disrupt the power of these companies? Like, what is the history of this relationship and why is it so, what would it take to break it? Well, I think what we're seeing with these stories of record energy company profits at the same time that people are struggling with decisions about whether to heat their home or feed their children. What we're seeing is really who are the true constituents of the government. They're most loyal to the shareholders of the executive boards of these energy companies. And there's many reasons behind this history. You know, there's there's the the interconnection between the oil companies, um, going right back to the kind of apex of British imperialism. We can think about the relationship between the Anglo-Iranian oil company and the British government. That becomes, of course, BP in subsequent years. And we could also look at perhaps the revolving door that exists today between executives from these companies and members of government and members of government leaving office and then going on to be on the advisory boards of these companies. But I think one element that I'd like to highlight for the audience that we don't often talk about, I think, enough in the United Kingdom is that often these governments, number one, don't want to challenge these energy companies. Um, you know, We know that the government were very reluctant to bring in the windfall tax, and so it's unsurprising that it's filled with so many holes and so many um, you know, exemptions for these companies. But as well as not wanting to challenge these companies, they're also scared of challenging these companies. And one of the reasons why they're scared of them is that over the last 40 or 50 years, there's been a real architecture of private legal arbitration tribunals that allow energy companies to be able to sue government successfully for any policies that they think interrupt their profits. Um, you know, we can see this with the WTO's investor state dispute resolution tribunals. Um, we can see this with the European Energy um, Charter Treaty. And we can see often these companies holding governments to account in the way that we want um, to hold these governments to account. And they're getting the results that they want. And if we want to think about just how um, often slanted in favor of these energy companies, these tribunal patterns, these tribunals panels often are, um, you know, we could look at the Secretary General of the European Charter. Um, treaty tribunal panel, Guy Lentz, who's a former Shell executive. And so that revolving door actually exists even on the um, rules that we put into place to navigate the relationship between private companies and governments. And that leads to the situation that we have at the moment where these companies can continue to profit whilst everyday people struggle month on month just to be able to survive. Yeah, and I think that the historicizing that relationship is really, really important. You know, the, this beast has been fed for so many decades and now it's so strong that it feels like none of us can really break it. Um, for anyone who wants to know more about that history of that relationship between governments of Britain and these oil companies, you should definitely check out Kojo's book. It's called Uncommonwealth. Um, and he goes into that with some really cool research. 
Um, and also, when you finish reading that, then join some actions to uh, try and break the power of these fossil fuel companies. Um, so back to the actual impact of all of this, the Met Office has released a stark report on Britain's climate future. And it argues that 2022, the hottest year since records began in 1884, gives an insight into the future UK climate. By the end of the century, it says 2022 will in fact be considered a cool year. But it's not just temperatures that are changing. Sea levels along Britain's coastlines have been rising too. This graph from the report shows that since 1900, the sea level around the UK has risen by almost 20 centimetres, and more than half of that rise has happened in the last 30 years. Scenes from Southern Europe and North Africa this month have been a shocking demonstration of how quickly climate catastrophe can accelerate. And now UN Chief Antonio Gutierrez has issued a terrifying warning to the world. And for scientists, it is unequivocal. Humans are to blame. All this is entirely consistent with predictions and repeated warnings. The only surprise is the speed of the change. Climate change is here, it is terrifying, and it is just the beginning. The era of global warming has ended, the era of global boiling has arrived. The air is unbreathable, the heat is unbearable, and the level of fossil fuel profits and climate inaction is unacceptable. Leaders must lead. I'm just going to repeat that. The era of global warming has ended. The era of global boiling has arrived. That is horrifying, almost as horrifying as the air being unbreathable, which he also said. But July isn't set to be, isn't just set to be the hottest month on record. It's also set to smash previous global temperature records. In this graph from The Guardian, the red line tracks the daily global average air temperature measured at two meters above the ground or sea. The blue lines show the previous hottest averages. So 2016 is light blue, 2022 is dark blue. And as you can see, temperatures since about May have been significantly higher than in previous years and much higher than the grey lines which show all years from 1940. According to researchers, the average temperature this July is now 1.5 degrees higher than the average before industrialization. Gutierrez went on to say this. It is still possible to limit global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels and avoid the very worst of climate change but only with dramatic, immediate climate action. Dramatic and immediate climate action. Surely our government will be taking note. Well, of course not. Following last week's narrow by-election victory in Uxbridge, the Tories seem to be throwing their green pledges out the window. Conservative MPs have been pushing Sunak to bin the 2030 ban on new petrol and diesel vehicles. And that's because they've interpreted that win as showing public distaste for a green agenda, after ULEZ expansion appeared to be a key issue for some voters. Sunak has since pledged to take a, quote, pragmatic approach to the ban. And we all know what that means, going whichever way will win more votes. Chris Stark from the Independent Climate Change Committee appeared on Radio Force Today programme to discuss the government's attitude to the climate. We are in the midst of a remarkable period right now, of course, in Southern Europe. 
and uh, it's it's it's. I'm afraid a feature of of the climate that there will be cooler years and hotter years. But the trend is very clear now. Now, only last month, your committee, which was under Lord Deben as chair, we often heard from on this program, said that the progress to the government's own target for dealing with climate change was worryingly slow. How so? And do you fear that the conversation that's now taking place could make it slower still? Yeah, I think you can tie together what we're seeing in this report, what we're seeing in Southern Europe with the change in the actual climate, with the discussion that we've had this week following the by-election. And it's a worrying situation. As somebody who works on climate issues, climate policies, we've seen this week just something that really, you know, a remarkable softening of the stance uh, and the rhetoric from our political leaders on on climate in a period when, frankly, we should be seeing the opposite. So it worries me that, firstly, but secondly, the progress we're making in this country against the targets that are set in law is just not fast enough. Just let me give you one illustration of that, Nick. So if you remove from the equation the one sector where we have been doing pretty well in this country, which is the, the power sector, we've been moving towards our more renewable, cleaner electricity system. Lots of good stuff that ministers like to talk about there. If you take that out of the equation, look at all the other sectors where, of course, the challenge now lies in decarbonising our economy, moving towards a goal of net zero. The, 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 the average in recent years has been about a 1% fall in greenhouse gas emissions. If we're going to meet the 2030 goal that the government set in that COP26 process back in Glasgow, remember when we hosted the climate summit, that needs to quadruple over the next six or seven years. Now, we are not seeing that kind of progress in the government's plans. Stark went on to talk about the government's potential softening of the 2030 car emissions target. We've just heard the, the environmental case for having a net zero target. It's very clear what net zero is about. Globally, net zero is the point when we stop warming the planet. So it's very important that an economy like the UK hits net zero. All the major economies will have to do so. We, that's the environmental case. It's very strong. Uh, my own belief is that if you don't make the economic case for it alongside that, then then we will we will really struggle in this mission towards net zero. The economic um, case, in other words, that it's good for, as it were, UK PLC. UK PLC, good for the consumer, good for especially the corporate community. So that 2030 goal is very, very important when you think about that, because what we're saying to the world is this is the, the major source of emissions is transport. We are a, a country that wants to phase out the sale of petrol and diesel cars by a certain date. Remember, just phase out. We're not talking about you know, banning them at that point. And we want to build an industry around that. So it's crackers, frankly, to, to invest half a billion pounds in bringing Jaguar Land Rover to the UK to invest in a new gigafactory for making uh, the batteries for those cars. And then similarly, in the, within almost the same week, start to talk about softening that 2030 goal uh, removing the market for the vehicles that Jaguar Land Rover wants to make. So we've got to bring this together properly and think of it as an economic policy as well as an environmental one. The government just coming under pressure from its own members to offer net zero targets, the car manufacturers are getting involved too, unsurprisingly. The Telegraph reports this. Toyota and Honda call on ministers to ease net zero rules. Planned rules will lead to car makers being fined from January unless one in five new vehicles sold produces zero emissions. So net zero proposals due to come into force next year say at least 22% of a company's new UK car sales must produce zero emissions from January 2024. And each year that figure will rise, eventually hitting 80% by 2030. After that, an outright ban on new petrol and diesel vehicles will come into force and companies that don't don't meet the target will have to pay fines of £15,000 for every non-zero emissions car sold beyond the thresholds. 
However, the car manufacturers want flexibility. A Toyota spokesperson said this. The auto sector works on product cycles of five to six years, so we welcome appropriate flexibilities to be included during the early years to give a range of manufacturers time to adapt. Our basic stance is that we encourage policies that can reduce CO2 emissions and help achieve net zero emissions by making the most of the efforts and strengths that have been developed by each car company. Meanwhile, a spokesperson from Honda said this. We are concerned that we still have not sight of the rules for the zero emissions vehicles mandate, which comes into force in less than six months. We are therefore asking the government to operate the mandate on a monitoring only basis in 2024 to give new customers and the industry time to adapt to the new rules. Just a little note, whenever corporations ask for flexibility, whether it's about labor, you know, workers' rights, whatever, it's normally a euphemism for no consequences. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if that's basically the same thing that we have here. Right, on to our next story. The Home Office's routine housing of child asylum seekers in hotels has been ruled unlawful by the UK High Court. The court found that hotels were being widely used to accommodate unaccompanied minors, even though this should only be reserved for, quote, very short periods and in true emergency situations. In the ruling, High Court Judge Mr. Justice Chamberlain said this. From December 2021, at least, the practice of accommodating children in hostel in hotels outside local authority care was both systematic and routine and had become an established part of the procedure for dealing with unaccompanied asylum-seeking children. From that point on, the Home Secretary's provision of hotel accommodation for unaccompanied asylum-seeking children exceeded the proper limits of her powers and was unlawful. The legal challenge came from the charity ECPAT, which stands for Every Child Protected Against Trafficking. And the Home Office and Department for Education have defense in the challenge that housing unaccompanied minors in hotels was a matter of necessity. Nearly 6,000 children have been housed in hotels since July 2021, a third of whom have been under 16, and the youngest was reported to be just nine years old. This ruling comes after reports that hundreds of asylum-seeking children have gone missing from hotels run by the Home Office. It is thought that many of them were groomed by criminal networks, with one whistleblower from a Home Office hotel claiming children had been abducted off the street outside the facility. More than 150 children are still missing. This is yet another instance of the Home Office's track record of repeatedly clashing with the courts over immigration policy, which is being found to violate basic human rights. The Rwanda policy, for example, was found to be unlawful by the Court of Appeals just last month, and the UN Human Rights Chief called the government's flagship illegal migration bill a, quote, worrying precedent for dismantling asylum-related obligations that carry very serious legal concerns. Kojo, does the government know that these policies are going to be challenged by the courts? You know, is that kind of part of the theatre of this? And if they do know that it's going to be challenged by the courts in this way, why do they keep pursuing it? Absolutely, they know that it's going to be challenged by the courts. And often they know it's going to be defeated by the courts as well. They know enough about the legal system to recognize when they are breaching the limitations and when they are doing that particularly in relationship to migration policy. I mean, I mean, do we remember when 
it was the Brexit referendum debates and so much of the narrative was that Brexit was important because, you know, the British tradition of rule of law, you know, the British legal system was something that was so precious that, you know, we couldn't continue losing legal powers to Europe. And then now a lot of the very same politicians who were banging the drum for Brexit are repeatedly infringing um, the rule of law in order to, like you say, um, perform this theatre of cruelty towards migrants in order to try and change the headlines from their inability to deal with the structural economic problems that continue to plague this country. You know, it really is using migrants, and in this case, migrant children, some of the most vulnerable people we could imagine in our society, um, using them for um, performative punishment beatings in order to um, create headlines that um, at least show that the government is taking some aggressive action, um, you know, and connecting it back to the earlier story that we discussed, you know, they can't take that, that kind of aggressive action against energy companies or aren't willing to take that aggressive action against energy companies. So instead they do it against um, migrant children. And it's, um, it's, it's really embarrassing. Yeah, I think when a uh, society can turn the other way, when unaccompanied asylum-seeking children are being kidnapped on the street, something in that society's soul is like severely broken. Like we forget that allowing this to happen and being in a society that allows this to happen actually breaks us as well. You know, something something is broken. Some, we have to kill something inside of us in order to be able to tolerate that. And that question of what it's doing to us, you know, and of course, what the impact that it's having on the people that are subjected to this, it's really difficult to, I mean, at what point do you get to the bottom of that barrel is, is my question. Um, do keep bringing, um, commenting on the, these stories, you know, on Twitter, use the hashtag Navarra Live, chats, YouTube. We really want to hear what you think about um, the show today and what you think about the stories that we're covering, particularly one that we just, we just did. Give us some hope. Um, that there's empathy and solidarity out there. Right, on to our next story. Another day, another Labour policy U-turn that throws marginalised people under the bus. Writing for The Guardian on Monday, Deputy Labour leader Annalise Dodds confirmed the party have dropped their pledge to introduce a self-identification system for trans people. Currently, trans people have to receive a gender dysphoria diagnosis in order to obtain a gender recognition certificate and therefore legally change their gender. This is a long and invasive process with trans people having to prove to a medical panel that they have been living as their acquired gender for two years. In her Guardian article, Dodd said that this will be amended um, ever so slightly. Instead of applying to a panel, the diagnosis would be needed from just one doctor, However, this is a notable departure from Labour's previous commitment, which would allow people to self-certify a change in gender. The policy of self-identification was initially introduced by Jeremy Corbyn as part of the party's 2019 manifesto and was reaffirmed by Keir Starmer in a video for Pink News in 2021. Labour knows how much work there is to do. We will always stand as an ally with the LGBT plus community in the fight for true equality. We're campaigning to ensure conversion therapy is banned once and for all. And we're committed to updating the GRA to introduce self-declaration for trans people. I've said that I want Britain to be the best place to grow up in 
and the best place to grow old in. That was Keir Starmer for Pink News. And, you know, it won't be long before he openly goes back on his pledge to make Britain the best place to grow up in and grow old in. I mean, that's where we're going with this. So the move has garnered criticism from within the party, including from Scottish Labour, who have since reiterated their support for a self-ID policy. So remember that that video was Keir Starmer speaking to Pink News. So now just a couple of years later, we have Pink News reporting the impact of uh, the U-turn on this policy with Alex Chilvers, a spokesperson for activist group Labour for Trans Rights, saying this to Pink News. As trans members of Labour, we have a very complicated relationship with the party leadership at large. Things have been getting worse for a long time and there is a certain level of hopelessness over the entire situation. Chilvers also said this, Labour's strategy for a long while has been to try to placate both sides of this debate on our existence. They've tried to simultaneously proclaim that they stand in support of trans people and our friends, talking about how much they think the GRA should be reformed. But at the same time, the position has been gradually creeping further and further into supporting the gender critical. Oh, what a difference two years in politics makes. Go, you go from Keir Starmer declaring to Pink News that Labour is, you know, a reliable ally to the trans community, acknowledging the impacts of medicalizing, um, transitioning, and the, the impact that that has on trans people. And just a mere two years later, even I think less than two years, you have that same outlet um, reporting on. The way that trans people in Labour actually feel, which is that they have a, to put it mildly and very generously, complicated relationship to the leadership. Um, just so you know, even if you're not trans, if this is the kind of party uh, that can make these commitments and renege on them so easily, it will eventually affect you. So that's that's what we're dealing with here. Uh, but this isn't just a sign of a divided Labour Party. It's also a sign of a divided union where Labour looks set to pander to the perceived prejudices uh, of English voters south of the border and bow to a culture war started by the Tories. And the price they're prepared to pay, of course, respect and basic rights for trans people in England. On to our next story, and it's a, it's a big one, so buckle in, because there's a lot of detail coming your way. Byline Times has released the fourth instalment of its three-year investigation into GB News presenter Dan Wooten, and the newest allegations are likely to have his old employer, The Sun, carefully checking its books. So, Dan Wooten paid porn stars with Sun's Depp money for covert catfish sex videos. In the, fourth, in the fourth part of its three-year special investigation, Byline Times reveals how the GB News presenter and Mail Online columnist used News UK cash to pay male adult actors to secretly film themselves having sex with men he had targeted on Facebook. So we've already covered allegations that Wooten used the pseudonyms Martin Branning and Maria Joseph to catfish, and in one case allegedly blackmail men into sending him explicit photos and videos. But the allegations in the new Byline report involved, involve Wooten operating out in the open. So according to Byline, Wooten, quote, rented the Facebook profiles of at least three adult performers. Once he had access to the accounts, he would target gay men posing as the porn stars and trick them into meeting for sex. Unbeknownst to the men, their encounters with the porn actors would be covertly filmed. And one of the adult performers told Byline this. 
Dan used to pay us anywhere between £300 and £500 to use our Facebooks. I didn't know these people he was messaging. It was all males. He was messaging as me, basically. I know he was using the Facebook of two other adult entertainers. I was watching the messages on one of the adult entertainers' accounts to this other lad, but he was deleting them as they were firing out and coming back. He was deleting them as they were going along. Asked whether Wooten was destroying evidence as the conversations went along, the adult entertainer said, quote, yes, Dan was doing it. A second performer told Byline this. He paid me to use my Facebook account. I still had access to it as well, but I gave him my password. And then when I felt he'd had enough time, I changed my password. After a while, Dan would message me. Wooten would say, I've got a guy here. Are you interested in coming down and filming it? The first entertainer went on to allege this. So he was literally paying people to use their Facebooks and film people having sex. These people we used to meet, I don't know who they were. I think they were from Dan's circle and the films were an attempt to get one up on them. I can't say for certain, but I think it was to get compromising material on people. That is my belief. Why else would you want someone filmed without their knowledge and be so adamant you want it filmed? The article goes into a specific case involving the two actors. In 2016, Wooden allegedly met the two porn stars outside the Sun's office in London Bridge. There he is said to have issued them with details of the target and gave them filming equipment and instructions. The first actor told Byline this. There were two cameras and an iPad we had to pick up from Dan from the Baby Shard. That's the nickname of the Sun's office in London. I was in the back of the car when Dan got into it. The guy we were messaging, the target, you could tell from the content of the messages, didn't want it filmed. But Dan's like, I don't care what he says, you get in there and get the film. Before you even go into the house, get the cameras on. I want the walk-in. The actor told Wooden, quote, you can't fucking do that, Dan. To which Wooden allegedly responded, quote, don't worry about him, he'll be fine. But the two porn actors agreed that they wouldn't film without the target's permission. The first actor goes on to say this about what happened when they met the target. We knocked on his door, introduced ourselves, and he was like, I don't believe you. Two porn stars want to come down and film me? And I was like, yeah, it's what we do. Basically, it's for personal use. This is what me and my mate do. We go around fucking people for a laugh. The guy could tell something was amiss. He weren't buying the story. After about 10 to 15 minutes free play, so light sexual activity, I advised him that the camera was going to come out and he was like, no, 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 I don't want it filmed. I don't want it filmed. I was like, okay, well, that's kind of it then. I, we didn't get anything on film. So we took Dan's cameras back and he said, you boys head back to your home location and I'll sort your money out. The second actor described an occasion where a film was made, this time involving a third porn actor. The meeting took place in a hotel in East London, close to Wooden's then home. According to the actor, the target agreed to have the encounter filmed on the understanding that it was for the private use of consenting parties. He goes on to tell Byline this. We went to Dan's flat in London. He was asking us to film another chap and he wanted it secret. He wanted it filmed secretly. So we filmed that and gave it to Dan. Dan was happy with it and he paid us. I think it was £500 each. I can't remember if it was paid in cash or by bank transfer. The article also alleges that on at least one occasion, Wooten paid a porn actor using money from the Sun newspaper, where he worked at the time. Byline reports this. On 10th of June 2016, 
Wooten sent an email from his work address, dan.wooten at thesun.co.uk, to the newspaper's editorial clerk, registering the porn star as a new payee on its contributor payment system. The email, which Byline Times has obtained, reads, I need the second entertainer set up as a new payee, please. He needs to put down for 1500 urgently on the Amber Heard splash from last week. Thanks, Dan. Analysis of the Sun's stories in the relevant time frame suggests that the payments, which the entertainer confirms was not for information about Johnny Depp or Amber Heard, was in lieu of an article Wooten wrote about the Hollywood pair's private lives. Byline Times also spoke to a third man that Wooten allegedly paid to make covert recordings of targets. According to this man, he initially made secret films for Martin Branning, a pseudonym that Byline alleges was used by Wooten. Branning, he said, would pay him £250 a time. But in 2012, the man says Wooten approached him directly. This is what he told Byline. It was on Sunday during the BAFTAs while Dan was still at the Sun. I got a message from Wooten himself. He asked me to secretly record me performing a specified sex act on a man who did not know he was being filmed at a hotel room at the Savoy for money. I was secretly recording, correct, but I didn't perform any sex acts. We just drank in the hotel room. What Wooden asked me to do didn't really happen, but he still asked me to video the man without his consent. That suite was paid for by the telecoms company Orange, which sponsored the BAFTAs. These allegations have been put to Wooten, as well as the allegations made in the previous three installments of this investigation, but Byline has received no response from him or his representatives. Wooten has denied any allegations of criminality. Wooten and his representatives have, according to Byline Times, failed to either confirm or deny that Wooten is connected to the name Martin Branning, and News UK, which owns The Sun, has not responded to Byline's questions. It has, however, appointed a legal firm to conduct an internal investigation into the allegations against Wooten. Wooten's current employers, The Mail Online and GB News, have also not responded to questions. But while Wooten's show is still being aired on GB News, his twice-weekly column in The Mail hasn't appeared since the byline story broke. Kojo, there is a lot to keep up with there. Um, what do you make of this? Is this just a sex scandal story or does this tell us something broader about how power is kind of built and maintained in these media institutions? I mean, this story just gets juicier and juicier, doesn't it? It just keeps having new chapters and new elements to it, um, you know. And I think in terms of the kind of broader point, I think you're right that, you know, this is real serious, you know, criminal allegations that are now being put towards Dan Wooten. But in terms of the kind of broader um, issue around the way in which our media functions, I think that it's really significant that now it's starting to show how interwoven these alleged um, incidents were with his work as a journalist, with his work for the Sun newspaper. Because when we're talking about the breaching of consent of innocent parties, when we're talking about the kind of nefarious use of payments in order to gain power and gain information, you know, we're starting to see some similarities between these stories that are now being um, investigated by the Byline Times and the accepted and recognized practice that we know um, Dan Wooten and many other Sun journalists have engaged in as part of their entertainment um, coverage, you know, 
And we've seen also the devastating impact that that has had upon um, some of its victims. And, you know, we've heard the... Um, the, the testimonies of people like the, the singer and actress Lily Allen. Um, you know, when we think about, um, the, you know, the impact that Dan Wun's journalistic career has had, you know, this is someone who has really kind of abused the, the culture of Britain um, as well as potentially abusing these unfortunate um, uh, victims. Um, you know, I think that when we are looking at, at, at this figure as Dan Wilson, I think, you know, we really are looking at someone who, I mean, I don't know, like, is there anyone in the British media who has got so far with so little talent and so little charisma, um, just with the ability to be able to kind of dig through the dirt and be able to leverage power and leverage information over people? I think that, it, it, you know, the, the practices that are being investigated in say a lot about what was the norm in the British media um, for far too long. Yeah, that's always, I feel like, this is this story has filled a missing piece of the puzzle because I've always been like, how did this guy go from a showbiz, like celebrity gossip columnist to a political broadcaster that is, you know, okay, not on one of the mainstream channels, but is frontlining a channel that unfortunately has a lot of financial backing and is becoming more prominent. And I'm like, is this how he he got there. I mean, obviously this is all alleged, but it doesn't, it, it says a lot about the the kind of broader culture about how these, a lot of these tabloids in particular, their entire model of journalism is about getting incriminating information on people, but it's never important incriminating information. It's not about, you know, centrica profits or whatever it is that we've been talking about throughout the show. It's always like just people's sex lives and in irrelevant information to try and gain very petty and despotic forms of power over people. And I've always wondered how someone like a Dan Wooden can stand, can, you know, have the, the, the gall to comb through the personal lives of, you know, whether it's Lily Allen, Meghan Markle, Caroline Flack, uh, to comb through every single little thing that they do and, and like do fake outrage based on anything in their per and act as if anything in their personal lives is up for grabs to be scrutinized, criticized. When this, this is in, this is the skeleton in your closet. Like it's wild to me, but it also goes to show that he really, in whatever world he is operating in, which we will never be privy to the exact ways that it operates, he feels certain in his position. And what I want to know is, is this the glue that's holding our journalistic and political class together? Because increasingly, I'm beginning to think it might be. Bizarre footage has emerged of U.S. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell. Take a look at this. Here, the 81-year-old was speaking about the latest defense funding bill when this happened. A partisan cooperation and a string of... Uh Anything else you want to say? Or should we just go back to you? Do you want to say anything else to the press? Okay. Go ahead, John. Let's go back to you. 
Go ahead, John. Very uncomfortable viewing there. So as you can see, something clearly isn't right with McConnell seeming to freeze mid-sentence. He came back 12 minutes later to continue the press conference, staying, stating that he was fine and still able to do his job. However, questions about whether McConnell is fit to govern have been swirling since he suffered a concussion after falling and hitting his head in March 2023, leading him to take a six-week break from the Senate. And this clip has given new life to ongoing conversations about the US being a gerontocracy, a society where the ruling political class are much older than the people they govern. After all, McConnell isn't the only one. Joe Biden is the US's oldest president in history, sworn in at 78 years old. And given he is seeking re-election, he may potentially be breaking his own record soon. 90-year-old Dianne Feinstein is the oldest senator in the House, and concerns were raised about her fitness to govern after she returned from a two-month health-related absence, physically frail and suffering from acute memory loss. What's more, there is a huge intergenerational wealth gap in the US, with boomers being 10 times richer than millennials, despite the latter making up most of the workforce. And time and time again in elections, we are seeing that age is a deciding factor in terms of how people vote and the politics that they hold. Kojo, the average age in the Senate is 65 years old. Is this, is this a problem or is it fine that, you know, the, you know, is, is it experience? Do we put it down to, you know, the more experience, the better? Or what is the impact of having such an elderly ruling class? Yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting one because I don't think that the age in, in and of itself is a disqualifier towards someone being a useful and, you know, important political operative. You know, I mean, Uncle Bernie Sanders is not only, he's 81, you know, and he's not only, um, you know, still championing the kind of politics that would address that intergenerational wealth gap, but he's also, you know, I saw him at the South Bank um, just last year, and he's, you know, for me, hands down, the finest political orator um, that I've ever seen live myself. So, you know, you can have, you know, a fantastic um, political operators in up into their 80s, but I do think it says something when, you start to see it as a as a mass, as a huge collective, and you start to see that gap in between the leaders of all of the the kind of major political offices in the U.S. and um, you know where's that next generation coming from, and where is the political representation for the generation that is um, you know finding their living standards declining so rapidly um, year upon year. Um, you know, you know when I read the story, it kind of takes me back to remember with the with the Arab Spring. Um, you know, remember when Ben Ali in Tunisia and Hosni Mubarak in Egypt were removed from power, and you know there were all these um, stories about how the you know the youth in the Arab world were removing these kind of calcified older men um, who had monopolized power for so long, and and who were actually indicative of a society that had itself calcified, that had itself stagnated, that wasn't allowing for political progress or political change. Um, you know, that idea of having this generation of older, um, you know, male uh, autocrats holding onto power is seen as a sign of a society that is no longer developing. And then now we're starting to see that same dynamic in the, you know, 
former heart of the free world in the United States of America, in the place that's supposed to be dynamic, that's supposed to be vibrant, that's supposed to um, celebrate and almost fetishize youth. Um, and so I think that that does say something when we see it on such a mass about the way in which politics and the ability for the U.S. political system to challenge and meet the big questions of the 21st century is starting to fail. Yeah, I think that you got the balance exactly right there, because I think it's really important to not, you know, with age comes experience. Obviously, the experience, the experience that someone like a Mitch McConnell has gained is experience and how to screw over everyone. Um, but the experience that a Bernie Sanders might gain, you know, that's really important intergenerational knowledge. But I think it's also when you have, you know, people who have held key strategic political positions for like decades and decades on end, where it starts to become a real problem, particularly when the material differences between generations is so stark right now. You know, we are, the millennial generation is the first generation to be worse off in their, than their parents, you know, for, for several, for a really long time. And so when generate that generational gap is such a marker of outcomes and of political positions on key issues, it starts to, it, it, it's like the, the age, the average age of, of the ruling class is like a sign of being politically out of touch and also a sign of not being willing to give or concede power in any way. Um, and that becomes, of course, a real problem. And also when you see someone, you know, with Diane Feinstein, people who are clearly, because obviously people age differently and you see people who are clearly struggling and you think, why, why is everyone so invested in keeping this person? Because it, it's almost abusive. Like, why is it, why are people so invested in keeping this person here? And it's because that person is a considered a reliable soldier of various interests. And it's like, we can't replace that person until we have an equally reliable person to take their place. And so it's a symbol of a much broader problem, which is that the parts of, of elected office that truly make an impact on our lives is being completely gatekept from anyone who diverges politically from, you know, the, the, the norm that has been established since particularly the 1980s, because a lot of these people who are now in this gerontocracy are the babies of, you know, or, or kind of cut their political teeth, as it were, during Thatcher and Reagan, you know, that neoliberal era. And it's about maintaining it. That's what it looks like in a lot of these cases. It's about maintaining the grip on power um, of people with that particular ideology. Right. So, I feel like it, we've covered so much ground this show. Thank you so much, Kojo, for joining me tonight. I wouldn't have wanted anyone else to be by my side today. <laughs> thank you for having me, Dahlia. It's been entertaining <laughs> and exciting as always. <laughs> and thanks, everyone, for watching this evening. Remember to come back tomorrow for another live stream from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.